Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. This is the Zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories, words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today, really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper. All views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for. So please come along for the journey, enjoy the ride and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. My name's James Dennis, I'm your presenter, and today we're talking all things leaders within the industry, and who better to talk to than John Minion. Welcome, John, to the show. Uh, good to meet you, James. Really great to meet you too. Now, if you want to introduce to all our lovely listeners exactly who you are, where you come from, and what title you hold. Of course. I'm John Minion, I'm the CEO and one of the founder directors of Yorkshire Wildlife Park. Truly amazing. Now, that leads perfectly to no one simply rolls into a position, no one's that lucky. Everyone generally will build and have those stories, those journey moments, those true stepping stones behind getting into the industry and building their way through it to the position they're in. Do you have them, John? Do you have those key moments from getting into the industry to the position you are in today? Uh, of course, and a bit of a zookeeper's dream so far as, you know, there's so many zookeepers there that probably dream of owning, operating their own zoo at some point. And I've pretty much done that right from the beginning to being CEO now to one of the largest zoos in the UK. So it's certainly been a really crazy journey. And did I think as a child, I was going to be operating a zoo? Possibly, possibly not. I mean, certainly always really passionate about animals as most of us are but I do one really really strong memory and that's a memory of people remember Windsor Safari Park and Winnie the Killer Whale and I can remember seeing Winnie and even at that point seeing a killer whale in such a small pool it bothered me and I was probably only five years of age at the time but that's my probably my first memory where I really thought I want to do something with animals not quite sure what I was going to do with animals but I was totally inspired and certainly really really focused about welfare and making a difference even at that age when I say yeah. Oh, that's truly amazing, John. What a great journey. And obviously that continues today. And I, I guess the listeners and myself are very intrigued to know, obviously your journey is very intertwined with Yorkshire's. How did that even come about? How is that a thing? I'll go back probably to the very beginning. And I apologise, this might be a little bit of a, a long story, but age of 18, been working out in Bjorka for the summer, came back, was supposed to go to university, looking for a job. And a few people listening will know a lady called Debbie Porter, who you used to work at Waving Safari Park and I've been friends with her for many years and I gave her a bell and I said Deb I'm looking for a job just for a few months and she said hey you know come down the wildlife park and see if you can get a job no interview whatsoever phoned them up pretty much the following day turned up started working in what was called Pets Corner at the time in fact one of the first things I did was hand rear a line cup or Nala got to work with penguins and a few other cool species at that moment now I was supposed to go to uni clearly I didn't I got totally hooked suddenly I found where I wanted to be you know I wanted wanted to be in a zoo. I wanted to be with animals. I wanted to work with these most amazing species. And then I got offered probably one of the dream jobs to work with elephants. Wow. You know, that was kind of really opening up something again to me and the opportunity to be working that closely with an animal and training an animal and building that connection up with an animal. And that was me. And then for the next 13 years, worked at Woven Safari Park primarily with the elephants. 
and got to travel the world. In fact, at the time I got my Arctic license in Waven Spiral Park, Christian Sauber, we built a specifically designed lorry for moving elephants. So I had the opportunity of moving elephants around Europe, moved elephants from Longleat to France and elephants from Port Lim and all various other stories. And then even got to go to India and bought Norjahan uh, back from India, who then ended up at Twycross. So it was an amazing time and so many opportunities were given. And I guess that kind of gave me the confidence that I have today. I mean, bearing in mind, I was 21 on my own and with a guy called Neil Williams who worked at Twycross. And the pair of us were uh, sat on a flatbed lorry driving across India with a two and a half year old calf in, in a crate. It was a flat back open back lorry, two and a half days on, on the road. No telephones at that point, no way of contacting anybody. And I'm thinking probably when I look at the kind of 21 year olds I've got working for me now, I can't imagine many of them really going out and doing that. It was a really good grounding and it certainly gave me a lot of confidence and made me realise probably, you know, the world is my oyster and anything I want to do is is absolutely achievable. Now, over that time, Cheryl Williams, who's one of the founder directors, and she was marketing manager for Waven Estate. So that included the Safari Park, the Abbey, the golf course. So Cheryl had a wealth of knowledge on marketing and importantly, a wealth of knowledge on animals as well. So between the pair of us, it worked pretty well. You know, the idea of setting up a zoo I had the animal expertise, Cheryl had the marketing expertise, and we were good friends. In fact, there's probably a little bit more to this story, and that is the fact that both Cheryl and I had horses, kept horses together, and where we kept the horses, the yard was on a lease, and the lease was going to run out. So we were desperately looking for somewhere else to keep our horses uh, while working. Cheryl was working at Waven. In fact, Cheryl found the story in the horse and the hound. I was riding a horse, she came over to me and said, there's this, this is advert story about a farm attraction with a large riding school, which is up for sale. She says, I know it's really out of the box, but what do you reckon? Do you reckon maybe that's something we could look at doing? I had nothing to lose at that point. I was 32, I think. And well, well come on, let's, let's go have a look at it. Let's drive up the motorway. Let's go see what's up there. We, know, we had no, no ambition at that point to open a big zoological attraction. Now, this was going to be way of life, perhaps of a small farm park type attraction, have the horses, Cheryl and her husband, Neville, they would do one part of it. I'd look after the animals. No, nobody really expected Yorkshire to end up being what it was at that point. And to cut a very long story short, because I will go on for hours about it, but it was middle of a recession, 2008. There was no money around. And trying to raise that funding, it was it was a lease at the time we were taking over, but to take that lease on and to try and initially set the park up, was tough. That was really difficult to try and find funding to do what we wanted to do in a recession. Certainly Lloyd, the bank manager, I think at that point, thought we were bonkers. You know, these crazy people from down south coming up to do what? To open Donny Zoo, you know, because that's pretty much how locally it was looked at. But we did do it. And somehow we did manage to pull the money together. We managed to get a few small grants. So that was really useful. Sold houses, sold cars cash in pensions, pretty much anything and everything we had, we put into it. It was hard. I can remember that winter trying to actually build the animal attraction itself and £150,000 and that was it to build the whole animal attraction. We all know how expensive you know, £150,000, you know, any of us that work in a large zoo, that that doesn't even sort of scratch the sides of building an animal closure these days. I had to put pathways in, put electricity and water in housing in and needed to create a kind of hours experience minimum to attract people to come around well a bit of clever kind of value engineering and importantly at that point thinking about the species that we could bring into the zoo which were going to do well in that environment and actually the habitats that we already had wonderfully formed there by mother nature where we could pretty much just ring fence areas 
of habitat, as long as we could find suitable species that were going to fit in well to that. And of course, we didn't have expensive housing to heat and all the other expensive issues that you know come on board. So in these early days, there may be some lemurs. That was probably the most expensive housing we had to put in place. But for the rest of it, you know, we had some zebra and ancoli and lechway, some African hunting dogs. So that was really cool and exciting. And the park opened and April 2009, we opened those doors. And how exciting was that? You know, suddenly we built a zoo. Wow, this is crazy. And Justin Fletcher, Mr. Tumble, very kindly came and opened the doors. And if my memory serves me correctly, about 500 people turned up on that day. And that was wow, way, way beyond what we expected. And the rest of the season um, happened and we were around 65,000 people came through the doors. Felt pretty good, you know, from a standing start. Cheryl had the tiniest marketing budget and we'd invested probably the best part of in total about 350 grand into this site. And 65 people, 65,000 people came through. Beginning of August, Matt Ford, and I'm sure quite a few of your listeners will have heard from, called me and said, John, you know, I've heard you've opened a zoo up north. Now, there's some lions in Romania are in some terrible conditions what do you think about holding lions i'm thinking how can we do this how can we go and potentially rescue 13 lions from romania and build an enclosure you know that's going to cost a fortune but i guess coming back to what i was talking earlier and my passion for welfare and opening the zoo it wasn't about making money it was about realizing your dream it was about doing something good and putting back so that opportunity to go out to Romania and see if we could do something to help these animals it really didn't take much from that to persuade me and within kind of a week suddenly I found myself booked on a flight flying over to Romania turned up at a radio zoo to be welcomed by it was a mixed reception the zoo director very keen to try and make a difference and really wanted she was new and realized the lion shouldn't be kept in the way they were being kept but the guys that run the zoo were not quite so sure why i was there and not so keen about my presence let's give a bit of context five lions living in a pen three and a half by three and a half meters it's just I mean, three and a half by three and a half meters, that's the size of a stable. Those lines couldn't even move away from each other. They were touching each other at all times. Most of the pens, the padlocks were welded shut. So you couldn't actually get in there. The only way the keepers could do anything to clean those pens down was to hose them down. So the lines all had most horrendous open ulcerated sores in their feet. Of course, where they were walking in urine and feces all day. Lived on white chicken because that's all they could feed them. That's all they could afford. And bear in mind, Actually, the keepers there that are looking after those lions were half the time not even getting paid. And they were going out and buying that chicken just to feed those lions with their own money. They were doing what they could to make a difference. But accelerate forward. News of the world, very kind. The time ran a big campaign for us. I think it was headline lions to die in Romanian hellhole, something along those lines. At that point, the Romanians were not very happy about that story, clearly, because it put them in, in bad media light. However, it did enable us to raise over 150000 Pants. Also, at that point, Jet2 very kindly decided to help us out and fly the lions back over to the UK. Fast forward March 2010, lions land in Yorkshire. And that was really the start of Yorkshire Wildlife Park. That's when we went from being this tiny little place that nobody had heard of to suddenly being on the map and a national media story being out there. And that definitely paved the way for us to heavily focus on welfare and trying to make a difference. And, and sometimes we can get focused about trying to rescue one particular animal. And does that really benefit that? And well, of course, it benefits that animal. But what does it do, however, from an educational perspective and getting that amount of media coverage 
you would hope we make a real difference. And suddenly welfare becomes the forefront of what people are thinking about. Suddenly people realise that when they're seeing these animals in small cages and they're going abroad, they're going Eastern Europe. And let's, let's face it, going back 15 years, we still had a few places in the UK that weren't that great. I think it really helped to educate the general public that this isn't acceptable anymore. And actually we will go to the extreme to make a difference. And I believe we did that. But that was really the birth of Yorkshire Wildlife Park. And that year, wow, 200 plus thousand people came through the gates. An amazing problem to have, but it was a problem. You know, the infrastructure for the site was tiny. We didn't have enough toilets, didn't have enough catering, didn't have enough car parking. Myself and never one of the other founder directors was often out on the barbecue, just trying to do burgers and sausages and whatever it might be, just to cater for anybody, all the people coming through. So, you know, really very much leading from the top downwards. I mean, it's leading by example is so important. And there is not a job that any of the founder directors have not done on site, whether or not that is cooking on a barbecue or cleaning the drains, whatever, whatever it might be. That was really exciting. You know, those times were crazy. And it was almost, it was almost like winning the lottery. You kind of had to pinch yourself, wow, is this really happening? And it did. And it continued to happen. With that, that sort of founding of welfare, the stories then continued. And on the back of that, we then focused on various different rescue stories over the following years from the bears in Japan. And we, we rescued the four bears that came over. That was tough. That, that was a really tough journey for everybody involved. You know, sadly, all those bears died within under two years of them being here on site. And that, that was a really tough journey, I think, for all of us and for the keepers. But And you question at that point, was that the right thing to do? But you know what? It was the right thing to do. And as much as those bears didn't get another 10 years of happiness living in Yorkshire, they did die on a dry bed and out of pain and with full tummies. And that enables me to sleep at night. The lion tower. 10 years on and we still got some of the youngsters they're all they're all a bit older now and they've got a few ailments and of course they weren't kept that great in the early days and they've got a few problems but we still got quite a few of them left um still enjoying life and that probably then leads us on to polar bears which of course is what yorkshire has been most famous for and that whole story started really with up i've probably most people have heard of up who was at morelia morelia zoo probably one of the most famous polar bears that appeared everywhere Lots of people trying to make a difference and trying to rescue her. And we've tried and worked really, really hard to try and rescue her. Sadly, you know, that proved to be a... It was just one stop too far, really. It was just an impossible journey. And we, we never managed to get her here. We were that close. Again, you know, big story, a lot of money being thrown into it. Was it the right thing to do? Yes, I believe it was. Because actually, it was truly educating people why that bear should not have been living out in Mexico in 45 degree heat, terrible conditions. But moving on from that, you know, we, we managed to do lots of work with polar bears, looking at welfare standards across the board. We know, I mean, we, we, there are some zoos in Europe that still keep polar bears. And I personally would think of some of the most horrendous conditions in concrete pits, painted white, chlorinated water. Not how I'd ever want to see a polar bear kept. Now, it might look like the Arctic, but I personally think polar bears need space. They need, like we have at Yorkshire, big lakes, lots of depth natural surroundings as natural surroundings as we can give them and a, and a natural environment and I, and I believe with the likes of Highland Wildlife Park and what we've done at Yorkshire we've really made a difference you know that has all been again welfare driven just purely because that a passion of ours and where we want to make a difference and I know I've spoken lots about welfare and it's not just all about welfare conservation is incredibly important and we do some amazing conservation work as well but you can't do that work without good welfare that has to come first that's essential in my head 
and that have been zoos over the years and I uh, that perhaps haven't haven't had that first and that's that has been incredibly important and we continue now through we set the foundation up which year on year it has grown and raised more funds and in fact where we sit now with the charity side the foundation has actually worked in every single continent in the world except for the Antarctic and I think that's quite impressive for uh for a fairly new charity in its early days to achieve so much good work. And whether or not that's been from the rehabilitation of Tiger or even helping towards working with the IUCN and sponsoring a document on climate change and research into climate change. So from different extremes of animal welfare to uh, conservation stories right through to climate change and let's be honest probably that's the big object here is climate change that's the one thing if we can make a difference is going to protect all of us and all our wonderful species throughout the world so yorkshire has been a fun journey so far and the journey continues what a truly amazing experience to be part of and you're very much living the dream for us all something we all would love to be able to do and you're very much doing it and living it day by day so no some cracking cracking words now the next part then, John, do you have any advice from those experiences from building Yorkshire through to simply your own journey moments to our listeners, to your younger self? And from what you've learned, is there anything that you can pass on back to them? Yeah, be true to yourself. And if you've got an idea, go with it and don't let people knock you down because we've all been, we've all experienced being knocked down. But if you truly believe what you want to achieve is the right thing and you can do it, do it. Get out there, do it. Never sit there with regret. You know, quite a few people said to me, you've been really lucky with what's happened. I have been lucky, don't get me wrong, but it has been a lot of hard work as well. And it's those two things that go together. A lot of hard work and a lot of luck is not either one of those. I guess that'd be my advice. Stick with it, work hard and anything's possible. Some very great advice there. Now, is there one trait then inside yourself which has allowed you to become the person to get into the position you are in today? That true attribute inside yourself which has allowed you to push on throughout this amazing industry? Yeah, there is actually. And I'm not even sure it's a positive trait. I think earlier on we briefly spoke about mental health within the zoo world. And that's definitely become more apparent over recent recent years and perhaps that's because people are more confident about speaking how they emotionally feel don't get me wrong you know mental health is mental health being the same i'm sure 200 years ago we all have to feel sad if we don't feel sad we're never going to feel happy so those emotions have got to happen and, and that's kind of essential but i got to maybe 2012 the zoo had grown way beyond what i thought was ever possible i think maybe 2012 we were sitting at around probably 350 nearly 400,000 visitors a year so that was the same size as like waving safari park at the time where I'd come from so you know that was wow I, that's the kind of numbers we got to which is crazy but it was a bit like winning the lottery and then suddenly I thought well where else do I go in life and, and I recognized not that I did go down this journey but I recognized where perhaps some kind of famous people you hear about Amy, Amy Winehouse would be a prime one here to have everything but clearly had nothing and I think you can get to that point where your life is beyond your dreams probably the best way to describe it and dreaming is really important aspiration to be able to achieve bigger and better than what you do so I had a real moment in life of, well, we can we can keep the, the wildlife park at the size it is, but that really doesn't excite me because I'm of a nature that I've got to do 
bed out. I've got to go. And then I woke up one and we said, you know what? No, let's aim to be the biggest zoological collection in the UK. I'm not quite there, but I'm not a million miles off it. And that's now what drives me. I guess that, that was quite a momentous moment in my life that really has spurred me on over to this sort of next stage and growing to the point where we are right now. Some really great stuff there. Now, we all know the industry is very demanding in the modern day any role within our zoos are five combined into one we're not expected to just be a one-trick pony we're expected to do a whole array of things how have you learned to cope with the craziness with the the uh, the ups and the downs the true demand of this industry and turn it into a positive and a true determination aspect to thrive and say do your role to the level it needs to be done that, that can be really challenging because, because let's be honest we are a business yes the, the, the animal collection the zoological element is my personal passion it's the thing that excites me it's the thing that you know, when we measure success in normal business you measure success by how much cash you really dealt where what we do within Yorkshire Wildlife Park or in any zoological collection well there's so many other measures of success and part of that is what you're doing with zoological collection itself and the conservation work you're doing and the welfare work you're doing and the education um, you're doing and the research that you're doing there's so many other measures but primarily as CEO I'm responsible to shareholders I'm responsible to other stakeholders such as the bank which are really important I'm responsible for 500 members of staff that work for us and the mortgages that they need to pay. So primarily my focus has to be on business. It has to be on commerciality. And for a zoo to be successful in this day and age, it might be seen as a swear word amongst zookeepers, but we have to be commercial. We have to be. You know what? And to have a good, successful zoo wildlife park in this modern day has to do two things. It has to be a successful commercial business. And alongside that, You've got to be doing good with your animal collection. You've got to be focusing conservation, welfare, education, research, and anything else that can come out of that, which is good. But it has to be both of those things. And there's an equal balance there because actually, you know what, if you're not doing any good work commercially, it's not going to succeed either. So there is a very, very fine balance. So coming back to the question of how do I focus? We're spinning so many plates with so many cogs within the business churning. I have an amazing team. That's our focus. And I have really good people that work together and we all have the same goal. I'm just a lucky person in front that's leading people and saying, come this way, come on, this is the direction we're doing this. Fundamentally, we work as a team. And if it wasn't for the team here at the Wildlife Park, it just wouldn't be here. It's not certainly not all about me. There are some fantastic people here. The vision has been Cheryl and myself, clearly, but that's it. Everybody else is part of that journey. You're making my life very, very easy. And that's because you've hit the bingo word, which is team. Without a good team, without a good core amount of people, without those amazing keepers running the show, you don't have a collection. You don't have a true entity which is going to push on in the form of education conservation and overall animal welfare which is the hub and the real reason for our zoos in the modern day so i guess alongside this for you what do you look for when employing a keeper and what really makes your keepers tick um maybe i'm going to start before looking for a keeper just looking to employ anybody that will come work at the wildlife park and whether or not there's a keeper or that's somebody working catering or an education wherever it might be cultural fit is the most important thing to be a team you've got to have the right people that are going to work together. And that's not saying everybody has to be crazy and full of energy. And you need a mix of people and you need a mix of people that are going to gel, but culturally work together. So anybody we employ or anybody we recruit, they will go through a cultural fit interview first. So that's a sort of first assessment stage 
where we look for the right attributes that we believe is going to make them a successful employee within our business. Now, from that, moving onwards, what does a good keeper look like in those early days? Maybe controversial subject, dare I say. And I remember when I started at the age of 18 and 1994, working at Wayne Safari Park, I was supposed to go to uni, get a degree, which I didn't. Workforces, I'd kind of done a little bit on, with farm animals. So I, as I had the good stockmanship skills, so it was really easy for me to kind of fit in and go and work with elephants or lions or tiger, whatever it might be. You know, I understood basic stockmanship. And then I think over the next sort of few years after that, we got very focused just employing anybody. You must have a degree. You must have a degree. You must have a degree. Quite rightly so. You know, it's really important to progress your education. So I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying don't get a degree. It's essential to do so. However, I believe we got heavily focused purely recruiting very academic people into a job at points can be quite routine and I think sometimes for very academic people that can be quite frustrating so I believe you need a mix you need good stockmen you need strong academics as well and it's those two types of people that I believe makes a really really good strong keeping team subject to them working together as a team because that is essential so now when we're looking to recruit people it's not just solely about how qualified you are now, there are clearly there are some roles where you need to be qualified. You need to have years of experience. That's, that's clearly always going to be the case. But if we can bring in keepers at that lower level, some that don't have a degree but have good stockmanship skills, I'm really keen to do that as well because I think that's essential. I think it's not always 100% necessary. So we're looking for a mix. We're looking for people who we believe are going to fit into our culture. They're going to work hard. That's pretty evident. If they fit into our culture... Of course, they work hard. And importantly, they probably understand what our vision is, why we're successful. That comes back to, again, of the commercial side of the business is really important because we're not doing that. We're not going to have the money to do the good stuff that we do with our animals. So they've got to buy into that. That's, that's essential. And then they're either a good stockman or they are somebody who's got a degree and a good academic. Ideally, we've got both. All in the one person. And that's amazing we can do that. But that's not always the case. Totally. And I guess to add on to that, is there anything else that someone listening who's looking to get that job, get their foot in the door or simply move from job to job can add to that CV, can add to their skill set? I guess you could argue to put a little gold star on that CV to make them shine a bit brighter in whatever skill set you see fit. Is, is there anything out there that they can do? No, that's, a good, that's a really good question. And I'd like to be able to answer that really, really easily. Of course, like it's challenging. Every animal keeper with job we put out, 200, 250 applicants, something along those lines. We, we recognise it. It's really, really difficult, isn't it, to be able to get your CV seen amongst a whole pile of other people who are equally just as strong. So what really stands out? What makes a difference? I don't think I actually give you a really, really clear answer on this because I just don't actually think there is one. Apart from thinking outside the box, coming up with a clever way of putting your CV in front of people, which makes people think, oh, I want to read that. Instead of just skimming through that massive pile, they want to read it. One thing, you know, people often don't do is read what the job criteria is and look at the key points in that job criteria and make sure in your job application and your CV, those elements jump out very, very clearly. It sounds really simple, but so many people don't do it. They just put the CV in, they put a covering letter, but they don't look at the job description. They don't look at what the organization is. And there's often key points that they could focus on within that covering letter at least, which makes you um as a as a person reviewing CVs, oh okay, that that ticks a box, that ticks a box. Because 
all organisations, I'm sure, will be the same as us. They all go through a scoring system, whether or not that CV um, goes to interview or not. Yeah, some really great words. And I guess to conclude this team section and to really sum it up, looking at your team at Yorkshire, they're all, I'm sure, amazing in their own right, separately as individuals. But together as a team, what brings them together as an attribute, as a skill set, as, as a personality? What is that one thing, that one trait, which collectively sums them up in one? I guess that's probably fairly obvious that we're all striving for the same thing. And we're all passionate about what we do. And we want to see a successful zoological collection doing good. Absolutely. Passion is a massive thing in this industry needed for our all collections. So it's great to hear it's at your end and your team is very much leading the way on this. Now, the next question I've got for you, and more importantly, the section of this podcast, is called The Big Questions. It's a part of this podcast where we tackle some of the larger questions from the industry, very much unanswered, so we'll give it a go and see how we get on. Now, the first question I've got for you takes us to America. It takes us to a demographic survey done of their keeping teams, and more importantly, the leaving ages of these keepers. Now, it comes out around the early 30s, and that's something roughly replicated over here in the UK. That could be due to simply us being viewed as labour over a trade. It could be simply at 30, you start analysing your general life choices, thinking about mortgages, families, and simply the pay uh, and the quality of the pay. So I guess putting this all together and the question I've got for you, John, is what do you feel we can do to, to hopefully safeguard our keeping staff in the future? Do you see this ever changing? And what else can we do to... to hopefully protect this yeah i mean i think james it, it clearly is happening and i think we see it across the industry that it's challenging isn't it i think so many keepers before you're a keeper and you're a child your aspiration is to be a zookeeper you want to work with animals and you work incredibly hard it's really tough to get into the industry because of those 250 applicants in that pile as well you suddenly get your dream job wow this is amazing but it's perhaps not quite what you thought it was going to be. And then you get stuck in this situation. There's only so much promotion within the industry. And often I see people that are, dare I say it, they're almost too good. They get to a point there is no promotion, that there is nowhere else for them to go because you've probably got one or two or maybe three very, very senior roles. And, and that makes it that makes it incredibly challenging for people. And, and we recognise that. I mean, certainly here in, in Yorkshire, we continually look at, the actual team structure to try and provide that opportunity. But there's only ever going to be so much of it. In regards to will that change into the future, I suspect zoological collections as a whole will change and the way we keep animals will change. We've seen so much change over the last 25 years, over the next 25 years, we're going to see change. And therefore that change will no doubt dictate well, how or how or what an animal keeper's journey will be within a zoological collection. I, I don't believe it's a simple question because it's not a simple answer to it either. That change you allude to leads us perfectly to number two. Now, number two is something brand new to the industry, very much a changing of the guard within the industry. And it comes from the Secretary of State's and the changing of the guidelines and the recommendations for how zoos portray themselves in education, conservation and overall welfare of our animals. Now, I want to focus predominantly on the conservation aspects and how we can't simply just give funds now to show that we do conservation. We have to prove our worth, document our worth and show the true efforts that our industry goes to. Now, the question I've got alongside this then is with unlimited funds, what would you do to achieve this? But I think more importantly, 
as this is going to hopefully highlight throughout this industry. What are you already doing to achieve this goal? Yeah, I mean, it's been a mix, to be honest, because there are so many good projects out there right now. And this is slightly controversial, the new guidelines that potentially are going to come out. Because you could argue, if you only have a small amount of money, well, that just gets lost. So to take a small amount of money and set up some projects because you feel you need to be a leader of a project, but it does no good, well, that's just pointless. So it's slightly against how, how I feel. And I do believe that as a collective, we can work far stronger and we can achieve far greater things. Now, right now for the foundation we have, we don't run any particular project ourselves because that in our, our eyes would be crazy. It would cost an absolute fortune to be able to achieve anything good. Whereas working collectively with other organizations and putting funding into different projects, importantly, knowing where that money is going and measuring the success of those projects. So don't get me wrong, we don't just hand money out willy-nilly just thinking, well, there you go, crack on, we've done a bit. Ah, no, we want to see the success and we want to measure that success. And subject to there being success, then clearly we will invest both money into whatever project that might be and, and there's huge amounts of projects that we're working on right now but i don't believe where we are at this moment in time would be right to solely focus on one project because i just don't believe one zoo can do enough to make a true difference and certainly perhaps we're getting to the size now potentially we could do but on the journey we've been over the last 10 years there's no enough that we would have time or the money or the focus to do it well enough so i personally think this is a tricky situation i recognize why we are trying to encourage zoos to do more than just put some money into a pot somewhere and pretend that they're making a difference I think the key thing behind this is measuring where that money goes and evidencing the difference that you are making as a, as a collection. And that's the essential element in my head. And perhaps that's the piece potentially gets lost if somebody is forced to work on their own project that has zero success. That's just a crazy waste of money. Yeah, totally. A really great answer. And that leads us to number three, the final question of the big questions. And that's collection planning. Everyone wants to be part of their collection plan from getting their favourite animal in, simply seeing and being part of the future of their collection. So the question I've got for you, and I think you are the man to answer this, is looking at your collection, how is it unique within the industry with its collection plan? And looking back, is there anything you would change up to now with your collection plan? Right, that's a really good question. From a collection plan perspective, look, I think I spoke at the beginning of this about the early days and how we collection plan. And importantly, it was looking heavily focused on welfare again, looking about what animals we believe were going to do good in the environment and habitats that we could provide them. And that has to be that first decision, doesn't it? That you can provide good, solid welfare and provide the animal in your care, um, the environment where it's going to thrive, that has to be number one. So that's, let, let's park that as that, that's number one. Um, and most people's animal collection plans these days are pretty dynamic and they need to be pretty fluid because it's, a, it's an ever-changing situation and the regional collection plans are constantly changing. So you've got to adapt and change with those and one minute red river hog would be a, a prime you know, a prime example oh we all need to breed red river hog and suddenly there's hundreds of them running around the place stop 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 you know and that happens time and time and time again with, with different species so it clearly needs to be a movable beast and we constantly adapt and again of course balancing big sea word which everybody hates commercial aspect because we, we do have meerkats i'd love to sit here and say we only have critically endangered animals and that's and that's all we have of course we don't you know we, we certainly give to try and have the majority 
majority of our animals to be critically endangered. That That's really, really important. But meerkats, people like meerkats. And rightly or wrongly, commercially, they work. And people will come to your zoo because you have meerkats. I'm not saying that's right, but, but that is how it is. And that is how the world is right now. As long as we're providing them with great habitat, great environment and area where they're going to thrive well is there any great issue with that i don't believe there is because what helping to do is some really really good conservation work along in along the way providing revenue to enable us to bring in some critically endangered species which we all know some of these species are very shy public don't generally see them now and it might really really excite zookeepers but from a public perspective when it's hidden around the back actually that's not that's not exciting them that's one thing at yorkshire I've always been very brave on, I think, because I think probably most zookeepers will will have felt at points under pressure by senior management, public need to see them, and they feel, God, am I compromising welfare here at the people walking through my zoo? Well, actually, I've never done that of our keepers. Um, yeah, often our black rhinos will be inside the house. Okay, well, that's that, that's where, if that's where they are and they're happy, that's where they are and they're happy. Our Amal leopard is a huge enclosure. We know typically our leopard don't do great in captivity, so deliberately we give them an enormous enclosure. And they've got two outdoor pens as well, and sort of back pens they can go into, so they have choice, and it's that choice that keeps them settled. Now we could force them out into the big enclosure um, and see them stressed and pacing them down. Nobody wants to see that. So I'd rather them not be seen if they want to go out the back, they want to hide in the bushes, they want to be wherever they want to be, let them be. And what we need to do is educate our public when they come in, if you do see an amelepid, it's one of the most critically endangered carnivores in the world. And how lucky are you that you've been able to see it? And then it becomes a really exciting thing. And not only are you seeing this most critically endangered carnivore, you're seeing it content and happy. That's got to be exciting for people. So collection planning is complex because of all of those various different reasons. And importantly, myself as a, a senior manager within a zoo, I want to see that our animals are happy and relaxed and people see them in a good environment. Mistakes, coming back to a very early question, anything I would change along the journey? There isn't anything I would change. And the reason I say that is because you learn by your decisions. And this is something else that probably also answers the question you asked me earlier about, is there any advice for zookeepers? Make a decision. That is probably a really important piece of advice. You don't ever make a decision, you're never going to be wrong, you're never going to be right. And therefore, coming to the collection planning, yes, I've made decisions and there might be some that think, oh, okay, well, perhaps that wasn't the best thing. We've learned from that and we've moved on. So therefore, it was the right decision at that moment in time because we wouldn't be where we are today. So make a decision, even if it's right, even if it's wrong. But if you never make the decision, you're never going to know. Yeah, for sure. And exactly like you say, there was a few of us obviously up with yourselves for Abwak earlier this year. And you're exactly right. We were standing outside that leopard enclosure with our cameras, waiting very patiently for that small glimpse of the leopard creeping out from behind that bush and coming out. That platform serves a real, real handy vantage point. But it is exactly like you say. So I couldn't could not agree more. Now, you'll be happy to know you've conquered those big questions. We've made it through. And we're on to the final part of this podcast. It's called the quick fire rounds. It could go really quickly or it could erupt into a whole wealth of knowledge. So we'll see what happens. But number one, what is your favourite animal? 
Good one. I actually don't have a favorite animal, but there are animals that intrigue me for different reasons. But I guess because elephants was the beginning, I have to say elephants. But then that's going to bring on the next question, which are you ever going to get elephants to Yorkshire? <laughs> which is a big question, isn't it? Uh, I thought you were going to give me an exclusive then. <laughs> okay, well, number two then. What is the best side of the industry? Oh, God, it's the people. It's the people. It's the people that are amazing. How passionate people are working long hours for not the best money in tough environments sometimes, but they're so passionate and truly want to make a difference. God, it is it's the people. Amazing. Wouldn't want to work in any other industry. Yeah, I could not agree more. Now, to flip that question around then... Is there anything you would improve within the industry? Oh, yeah. There's lots we need to improve. And I, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I think the, the industry, whatever you want to call it, Brazilological Collections, Wildlife Park, have improved no end over recent times. We've more educated. We've become smarter. We truly have made some huge, huge differences. But it's still not enough. We still have to review what we do. I still believe we should be doing far better than what we currently do. But that can't be achieved overnight. And that takes time. And one of those key things is education and it's educating not only us within the industry, but educating the general public as well. Once that education is in place, then change can, can happen. But as we know, education takes a long, long time. So like, there's, there's nothing I'm going to sit here specifically and say that's wrong in, in the zoo industry. I think there's some amazing work that so many zoos do and constantly we're pushing the boundaries. Yeah, for sure. I think that is the whole industry put together, though, pushing forward as a collective and we will succeed as a collective. Now, the next one then for you, and I don't think this is a quick fire. What is your top tip for mental health and well-being? Have a dream. Focus on the dream. Focus on something that keeps you happy. And you know what? That dream can be really small. doesn't need to be a big dream. When you're there in your lion house, whatever, wherever you're working, you're mucking out, you're a bright person, your brain's on, tick over. Focus on the holiday you've just booked or focus on... I don't know, the new car you're going to buy or focus on the new wallpaper you're going to put on your on your bedroom wall. Whatever it might be, but focus on things that make you happy. And don't be scared of being sad because sad is pretty normal. And if we're sad, we, we experience happy. And don't be worried about being anxious. You know, anxiety is, I, I hear this all the time. I know I suffer from anxiety, my anxiety this, my anxiety that. I get anxiety you know, because I'm a human being. I get anxious about stuff. I do it. And you know, when that zebra is running across the plains with a lion chasing it, trust me, it's feeling pretty anxious. <laughs> that anxiety is pumping, pumping through its body. So that's pretty normal. So don't, be, don't ever be scared of being anxious, being sad, because they are normal human feelings. But focus on being happy and dream. Yeah, some really great advice there. Now, this next one could take you absolutely anywhere, and that is, what zoo globally would you like to visit and why? Whoa! <laughs> that's, uh, I've been to quite a few, so that's a, that's, a, that's a really, really big question. And you know what? I'm, I'm going to be shocking um, what I'm going to say. It's terrible. The zoo, I want to go and visit ASAP, because I just haven't been for 20 years, and you're going to be shocked. It's Chester Zoo, and it's just down the road, but it's one of those things that you kind of fly over the world, you go to all these wonderful places and actually the biggest zoo in the country that's just down the road from me i've not been to about 20 years i may maybe a little bit sooner than that but certainly it's been a long time so that's where i want to go and see it yeah some really great advice there now the next one we've already touched on it but i'm going to try you again and see if your answer changes 
with your mystic hat on in 20 to 30 years do you still see zoos doing what they do today or are they going to change and be different to what we see today i don't see zoos being the same as they are today because i think we've seen so much change over the last 25 years so that if we accelerate at that same rate there's clearly going to be much more change i believe we have to become far cleverer about what we're achieving and be far more responsible at what we do but recognize the fact in this day and age comes down to that big old seed wave again we have to be commercial entities but there's many ways to be a commercial entity and to make a difference and it isn't necessarily always about showing animals in enclosures within the uk yes yeah, some really great words there now john we're on that last question it's one of the biggest of the whole podcast episode i want you to describe for myself and anyone else listening the whole industry sum it up for us all in only three words okay um how would i sum up the industry in three words i mean it is you know it is clearly amazing inspirational i guess that's another that that would be another word that i would describe what we do and forward thinking three very fitting words to really sum up this episode and to really sum up the whole industry as a whole from myself and the listeners john thank you so much for coming on sharing your story sharing your journey and your amazing wealth of knowledge my pleasure it's been um yeah, it's been good fun oh it's really been a true pleasure and hopefully we'll get you on again very very soon yes thank you very much you take care absolutely take care of yourself bye and that concludes this week's episode what an amazing guest and an amazing time we had now if you have enjoyed it please do subscribe on instagram facebook or our podcast channels to zookeeping 101 i can't express how thankful i am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey learning about everything zookeeper otherwise please subscribe thank you for listening and see you very very soon bye